right, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We'll look at verses 36 through 39 this morning. The text is also printed in the next uh, page of the bulletin for you there. Hopefully that's easy enough for everybody to follow along with. Um, We have some baptisms today, and uh, it's pretty exciting. It's been, um, it's actually been a few years since we've had a full sermon on baptism, and since we have three babies being baptized in a few minutes, I thought we could take our time today to consider what baptism means. So uh, we just finished up a, a series on John's Gospel. We're moving into a series on Psalms, but this is sort of a, uh, just a single uh, sermon on baptism this morning. For some of you, this baptism stuff is familiar. Uh, for some of you, it's sort of traditional and you're happy you're okay with that. Or maybe it's a delightful thing for you uh, whenever you uh, think about baptism, your own baptism, or somebody else's baptism that we're seeing. Some of you um, have no idea what baptism is about at all, or maybe just have a foggy notion that Christians are supposed to be baptized. And uh, some of you aren't persuaded that uh, what we're going to do this morning, uh, baptizing three babies, is a good biblical idea. Um, Different Christians, uh, different churches have various views on baptism, what, what it means, who should be baptized, uh, some don't think anyone needs to be baptized with water. Um, Quakers, friends, uh, don't, uh, don't believe that uh, the sacraments need to be practiced in a physical, tangible way. Some insist that only devoted believers should undergo baptism, for, for example, the Baptists. And um, some think that water baptism has a sort of a, a, almost a miraculous power in itself uh, to save people. Catholics, I think, teach that. So... Um, I probably won't be able to sort out everyone's questions here on baptism. My goal certainly is not just to be right and win all the arguments and to convince you how all those Quakers and Baptists and Catholics are wrong. I mean to serve you this morning, to minister to you with what the Bible says about baptism because baptism is a wonderful gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God to us in the church. It's full of meaning. It's full of importance that we can't fully comprehend. It's one of the two sacraments that Jesus gave to the church, uh, along with the, the communion table, uh, as, a, as what we call a means of grace. It's a means for him to be gracious to us. Uh, it's a visible, tangible ceremony, if you will, that communicates the gospel of his grace to us, that's used by the Holy Spirit to assure us that God actually does love us. That's what baptism is for. The Holy Spirit uses it to assure us that God really does love us, and it helps us to believe and trust in Christ, and helps us to be renewed in his image. Help us to be renewed in the image of the true human being into whom we are baptized. Uh, So Reformed Presbyterians believe that this is a gift for everyone in the church, and that means believers and also their children. So uh, what a gift it is. We're going to talk about that this morning from Acts chapter 2. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would help us, each and every one of us, youngest to oldest, that you would help your words to enter into our hearts through the power of your spirit, that you would renew our hearts and transform our minds, that you would help us to trust you, to believe the gospel, and to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, like I said, we've been looking at John's gospel uh, up until now, uh, for the last couple of years, uh, following along in his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, his interactions with the disciples after his resurrection, and, and next week, start a new series in the Psalms. Berta has told me that she was very sad we wouldn't be continuing with the story of the apostles and see their lives changed at, the, at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Uh, well, we'll give it one week. What do you say, Berta? <clears throat> Is that enough? <laughs> um, the book of Acts. It opens where the Gospels sort of leave off. It opens with the risen Lord Jesus instructing his disciples, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. That's what he says to them in chapter 1. Wait for the promise of the Father. Uh, to wait for Jesus to, when he's in heaven, after he's ascended into heaven, to pour out the Holy Spirit on them, to baptize them. Um, with the Holy Spirit. So then Jesus was lifted up into heaven, and so the disciples waited. And it says at the beginning of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Et voila, this is the baptism of the church. This is This is Christ, the anointed one, the one who's been anointed with the Holy Spirit, pouring out his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, uh, on the church. He baptized his church with the Holy Spirit. And so it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So the immediate effect of their baptism, right off the bat, first thing that happens, and you see this over and over again in the book of Acts, whenever it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which happens to the disciples a lot of times. They pray and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The very next thing you see is that they're able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. That's the immediate effect of their baptism, uh, their, their ability to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all, here in chapter 2, all the Jews and all the Gentile proselytes, those who are sort of becoming Jews and worshiping the one true God in the, in the Jewish way, uh, all the J- Jews and Gentile proselytes from the surrounding nations, they've all made this festival pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they're all able to hear Peter and the other apostles proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own languages. That's the effect of their baptism with the Holy Spirit. So Peter preached his famous sermon. He explains the fact that Jesus, who had been killed there in Jerusalem just uh, uh, 40, 50 days, 50 days before, um, he'd been killed in Jerusalem. He had been raised by God from the dead been exalted to God's right hand in heaven, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, had just baptized his people with the Holy Spirit. That's what just happened, Peter says. It's, been, it's promised. He quotes the Old Testament about how this is the, the promise from the Father, the Holy Spirit coming upon the people. So Peter shows from the Scriptures, it's what we call the Old Testament. For him, it was the Scriptures. Uh, that this is what God has been promising his people all along, from the beginning, from the beginning of God's revelation of himself. Um, God has graciously promised to give himself to his people in love. That's the promise. God is going to give himself to his people in love, in spite of the fact that his people didn't deserve it, 
in spite of the fact that his people never would fully appreciate it, what it means, in spite of the fact that his people have had a tendency to love the gifts more than the giver, all the good things that God has done for them or given to them, and sort of ignoring him as the, the one who gives all these good gifts, focus more on what God can do for us than on God himself. In spite of all that, he would come to his people, he would give himself to them, and he would fill them up with himself. Jesus Christ, God come to earth in the flesh, he'd be the one to restore our relationship to God, to make that possible, and then to send the Holy Spirit who is the promise. He's the promise of the Father to his people. So there's some bad news implicit in this, that part about Jesus coming to the world to restore the relationship so that we could receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, that implies uh, that things are broken. He says in, uh, Peter says in his, sort of the end of his sermon in uh, verse 36 in our passage, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Again, Christ means the, the one who's anointed, the one who's anointed with the Holy Spirit who will also anoint others and baptize others with the Holy Spirit. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the bad news, right? You crucified. Uh, Peter's calling attention to the conflict that exists between sinners and God. The conflict exists between them and Jesus, and therefore between them and, and the triune God. Maybe these particular individuals had been present and complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus some 50 days before. Maybe they'd been there, some of them anyway, probably. Maybe not. But as sinful human beings who are in conflict with God, who want to have nothing to do with God or trying to get away from God, trying to deny his existence or just in open rebellion against him, sinners in conflict with God, all of them and all of us, they're, they're in solidarity with the people who put Jesus on the cross, who put nails in his hands and feet. We're all in solidarity together as sinners who are in conflict with God. Even though it happened halfway around the world 2,000 years ago, we can say that we crucified Jesus, that we actually murdered Jesus. We can say that. It was people with hearts just like ours who did it. It was people who wanted the giver out of the picture so that we could just enjoy his gifts apart from him. As one race, sinful humanity rose up in mutiny and in insurrection against God, and our conflict climaxed at the cross of Jesus Christ, where we killed him. Clearly, the Spirit was at work among this audience of Peter's, Spirit was at work already in their hearts because they experienced the conviction of their sin, which Jesus says, yeah, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict you of your sin. So it says when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So if someone points out to you that you have been in conflict with God, like, like Peter has and like I just have, if someone points out to you that you've been in conflict with God and you get your hackles up and you get defensive and you start justifying yourself and say, no, no, that's not a great place to be. 
that's not a great place to be. But if someone points out that you've been in conflict with God and it cuts you to the heart and it grieves you and it makes you sorrowful and concerned about the state of your relationship with God, because you know what? You actually are interested in having a relationship with God. And I'm worried about that because I've been in conflict with God. What does that mean? Well, that's a sign of the gracious, convicting work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The Holy Spirit's at work, bringing you to that place. And there's good news for you. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter doesn't say, yeah, you've done some really bad things. You better try harder. You better get things together. You better work off your guilt or else. That's not what he says. He just says, repent and be baptized which is good news. It basically means stop running from God, turn to him, let him overtake you with his love, let, him, let his forgiving love wash over you. The call to repentance, as I said earlier in the service, it's not a threat. It's not like you hear the sandwich board, doom and gloom, street preachers saying, you'd better repent, you better turn this thing around or else... It's not a threat. The call to repentance. The Bible says repentance is a gift of God's grace. It is sweet relief to stop your war with God. It's sweet relief to be able to stop your war with God. Repent. It means very literally uh, in the original Greek there, it means turn the mind. Which uh, is to say that the biblical idea of repentance, it goes deeper than just changing your actions. It goes deeper than just a behavioral change, pattern change at a superficial level. It's a, it's a turning, it's a changing at the deepest levels of who we are, the mind, the inner person. And it's a change on that level. The call to repent is more than just saying stop doing bad things. It's saying your whole life has been on a trajectory away from God. Your whole life has been characterized by conflict with God. Now decisively turn to him. Turn to him and embrace him and embrace who he is and what he has done, his great works on your behalf and all of his promises to you. Just embrace him and let that turning then characterize every part of who you are to the the deepest part of your humanity. Stop disbelieving him and trust him. Stop ignoring him and forgetting him and meditate on him. Stop pursuing your own way in life. Follow him. Stop striving against him, which is not only exhausting, it's futile. Stop striving against him and find your rest in him. Stop looking to fill your own desires apart from him and delight yourself in him, in him and in his ways. For believers, for those who trust in Christ, and have uh, the Holy Spirit, there is a a first, a very first, and a very significant time when you repent and when you you turn to God. Turn away from your sin, you turn to God, but there's never a time in this life where you're finished with that. There's never a time when you've completely repented in this life, where you've once and for all fully and perfectly turned to God. 
Not in this life. There's not a, a time of complete repentance in this life. God will continue to reveal himself to you throughout your life in ways that will make you wonder if you really were a Christian before. God will continue to reveal himself to you throughout this life in ways that make you wonder if you've really understood his grace before, if you've really received his love before, if you've really ever repented before. That's normal. That's normal. That's what sanctification feels like to us. And most of your repentance will take place after the first time, after the beginning. But it's got to start somewhere. And Peter describes the beginning of the Christian life with God as turning to him and letting his forgiving love wash over you. That's, that's what he says. Repent and be baptized. Be baptized. That means it's passive. It's passive. It's not something you do. Baptism is not something you're doing. It's something God does to you. Because God is the one who cleanses you. God is the one who forgives your sins through Jesus Christ. God is the one who pours out his love on you by his free choice and by his act and the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's the one who baptizes you. I think a lot of people view baptism as something that, uh, something that we're saying to God. Something that I'm saying to God as an individual Christian. A profession of my devotion to him as one of his people. Or maybe at least a part of our testimony to others, whether it's in the church or outside the church in the world. Baptism as my testimony. I don't think the Bible describes it that way anywhere. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think, I can't remember a place where the Bible describes baptism as our testimony to God or to others. Something that we're saying. Baptism is something that God is saying to us. It's something that he is testifying to us. He's saying, I love you, I forgive you, I cleanse you of your sins, I've wiped them away, and now you're mine. That's what he's saying with baptism. One writer likens baptism to a, uh, a wedding ring. A wedding ring that's given as a token, as a symbol of the union of a husband and a wife. Um, the ring isn't itself the union, but it's a good token. It's a material, tangible symbol of the union of a husband and wife, specifically of one's vows and commitment of love to one's spouse. When you give the ring, you're saying, with this ring, remember, I love you, and I'm yours. And um, so the ring that you wear, if you're married, the ring you have on your finger right now, if you're wearing a wedding band, the, the ring you wear is a material testimony of your spouse's love to you. It's not to remember, to look at and say, my love to my wife. It's, it's your wife or your husband's love to you. That's the testimony of it, right there. Similarly, baptism is a declaration of God's love to the baptized person. And it's God's perfect love. It's God's perfect devotion. It's God's perfect faithfulness. It's the testimony of that to you. If baptism were a declaration of my love, if, if baptism were a declaration of my faithfulness to God and my devotion to God, then I would need to be baptized as often as I repented, as often as I grew in holiness, as often as I grew 
in my profession of faith and got more serious about spirituality, I'd have to get baptized over and over again if it's, if it's a testimony of my love to God, which is pretty pitiful. Baptism as my testimony, my faith in God or others, uh, uh, my testimony to God or to others, uh, it would only be as strong and and as reassuring as the reality of my faith is, the reality of my love. That's all the the assurance I could get out of my baptism. It reflects my love, and and that's pretty pitiful, like I said. So it would be a big problem. Uh, but, But God uses baptism to confirm for us the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the whole point of it, to confirm the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that once and for all, the perfect sacrifice has been made for your sins. Your sins have been washed away by him, that you're not saved because of your own devotion. Your own devotion is pretty pitiful. It falters. But we're saved by the unwavering devotion of Jesus Christ to us. That's what baptism says. Baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. It means that we're united to Jesus Christ. That's a picture that the scriptures give us in a lot of places. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. So spiritual, relational uh, connection that cannot be ever severed. It's a real union that we have with Christ. Baptism in the name of of Jesus Christ means that, which means we're members of his body. We're members of his church. We're members of his family, family of the triune God. That, that means the church. Uh, and that's why we're baptized in the triune name of God. Uh, so Ed Clowney says that Christian baptism, it's a naming ceremony. It's a naming ceremony. The baptized is given a name, the name of the triune God. Your father is placing a new name on you when you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of the triune God. So in a spiritual sense, everyone in the church has a new last name. Everyone in the church has a new surname. Because everyone in the church has been adopted by God the Father in Jesus Christ, through our union with Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. That's the gift of God. That's the promise of God. It's been promised throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the gospel culminating so far with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which the church has received, that's the great reality to which water baptism points. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's the great reality that water baptism pictures for us. So Peter says, be baptized because the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this has been said uh, several times in Acts so far. The promise is... The baptism of the Holy Spirit, who unites us to Jesus and makes us sons and daughters of God through adoption in Christ. God is a family God. In himself, he's a family. His salvation is a family salvation. He brings us into his family. And he brings our families into his family. He's always done this from the earliest covenant promises that we find in the scriptures. When he makes promises to bless his people, it includes their children and their households, everybody. When he makes promises to Adam and Eve, who does it involve? Their offspring. 
When he makes promises to Noah after the flood, he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Or think of our Old Testament reading when he makes promises to Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I'll be their God. He's making promises to Abraham about being the God of Abraham's children. He makes promises to be their God. It's the short-form promise to give himself to them in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what this, uh, this promise is prototypical of, if you will. It's sort of an, a hint at it. And the promise extends to the children, and, and so does the sign of the promise. So does the sign of the promise, which, as we continue on in that Old Testament reading, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Eight days old, male infants. They're not making a choice about that. Eight days old, he'll be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, not even blood relatives. Bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the f- flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people because he's broken my covenant. So here's the basic idea. God made promises to his people and to their children, which means that his people and their children are in covenant relationship with God. We're in a relationship with God. And they keep his covenant by having the sign of the covenant, even the little babies. And if the little babies don't have the sign of the covenant, it doesn't mean that they're just still on the outside and they haven't been brought in, they haven't made profession of faith, and then they'll be circumcised. It says, actually, if they're uncircumcised, it means that they've broken the covenant of God that they were already in by virtue of being children of the covenant, children of believers. And here it is even more basically. God is in relationship with people and with our families, And he wants us to live like we believe that, like that means something to us, that's important to us. He wants us to live in response to his gracious love, which has been poured out not just on us, but on our families. He doesn't just relate to us as isolated individuals. That's a big American problem, our individualism. He doesn't just relate to us as isolated individuals. Our family relationships are tremendously important to him. They're more important to him than they are to us. And when he brings us into relationship with himself, he brings in our whole household. He says, now the relationships are there, and I want you to live like you believe that. So do you see that as an overriding violation of individual choice and freedom? The fact that these little children, these little babies who had no choice would have to be circumcised, or that we baptize little babies. Is that an overriding violation of individual choice, or does it delight you that God would love and claim your family for himself, that he would bring them into his own church 
and into his own family. Isn't that what you want? That's what you want, right? In several places in the New Testament, we get the picture that baptism, it's the right of entry into the church. It's the right of entry into relationship with God, into our union with Jesus Christ, just like circumcision used to be. Circumcision isn't that for us anymore. Scriptures make that clear. But the connection between circumcision and baptism is it's explicit in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, In Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is the true inward spiritual heart reality circumcision where, where you've said goodbye to the world and you've been made alive to God. You've been made sensitive to God in your heart. That's a reality for you by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ because Christ himself on the cross, he was cut off from the world. He died to the world so that he would be alive to God. He was cut off as if he were flesh, as if he were sin itself. He was cut off and an end was put to it. And it says this has happened because you've been buried with him in baptism. You were circumcised through your baptism, which united you to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. So Herman Bavink, he's an old Dutch guy, um, he said, through the death of Christ, which was a complete putting off of sin and victory over sin, and hence fully realized the idea of circumcision, that, that circumcision has been rendered obsolete and came to its fulfillment in baptism. Baptism, therefore, is more than circumcision, not in essence, but in degree. Circumcision points forward to the death of Christ. Baptism points back to it. So the good news about baptism. The good news is God has always promised to deal with the problem of our sin. He's promised that he would deal with it, that he would destroy our sin without destroying us. He said he would do it destroy his sin through his judgment, to wash his people clean of it, to make them new and make them spiritually sensitive and alive to him, to bring them to spiritual life. God has always promised to be our God, to have us as his people, to give himself fully to us. His people used to look forward to all those promises and the, the covenant sign for that was circumcision, which was unpleasant and limited to the males. And then Jesus Christ came into the world, and all the promises of God found their, their fulfillment in him. And whenever the apostles speak of baptism in the New Testament, they speak of the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. We have died to our sin with Jesus because we've been united with Jesus in his death. We have been made alive to God through Jesus. We've been given real spiritual life through our union with him. We have his God and his Father as our God and our Father. And we have his own spirit as our own spirit. God has given himself to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's pictured for us. This is pictured for us, these promises fulfilled in Christ, in the washing, the cleansing water, which is a gift for all of God's people, not just limited to the males, all of us. We've all been baptized here in this church, men and women, young and old, because his promises are for 
you and for your children. And there's a lot more that could be said about baptism. So many other great passages of Scripture that talk about it. Um, All these wonderful themes that can be traced throughout the Bible. I'd love to talk with uh, any of you more about it. Uh, So if you're interested in doing that, if you have questions, let me know. We can get coffee or something. But for now, let me just wrap up with a few thoughts for application. The first and obvious application of this passage and what we've been talking about this morning is repent and be baptized. Stop your rebellion against God. Let him overtake you with his love. Let him wash you with his forgiving love. Because the promise, the promise that he would give himself to you, that he would restore your relationship and and flood your life with his Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and for your children. We don't think uh, water baptism has the power to save you in and of itself. I think that's sort of a strange way of thinking about water baptism. It has power in itself to, to do miraculous works, but the, the, the Holy Spirit uses it. The Holy Spirit uses your baptism to assure you of your relationship to God, that God really does love you. He's made good promises to you, which are all fulfilled in Christ, and he's claimed you as his own. He's given, him, given himself to you. That's, the Holy Spirit uses baptism to assure you of that. So if you've been baptized, view your baptism that way. View it that way. So I'm thinking about people who might question, uh, I think a lot of people question whether their baptism really counted or not. Maybe you're worried because you didn't emerge from your baptism as the picture of sinless perfection. <laughs> Never have a problem with sin again after you're baptized. Right? Maybe you wonder whether you're even really saved, or you wonder whether you should try baptism again and again until it sticks, and you really do emerge the picture of sinless perfection. (laughs) Baptism is just the beginning of a life in relationship with God, a life in his church, a life of listening to him and responding to him with faith. That's what baptism is, the beginning of all that. And it's more what God says to you than it is what you say to him, the profession of your undying love and devotion to him. It's, it's more what he says to you. So listen to his voice explaining what your baptism means. Everywhere in the New Testament, the apostles refer Christians back to their baptisms in order to encourage them, not to call into question their salvation. It's to, to let them know you really have been saved. God really has loved you. Everywhere, they're pointing it uh, back to the baptism as a way to comfort Christians, to motivate them with the good news of Jesus Christ. The vast majority of our thoughts about baptism occur after baptism. You don't get this figured out all in advance and understand everything about what you're doing when you're baptized and never have to improve in your thinking about baptism after that. The vast majority of our thoughts about our own baptisms come after the fact And they point back to a reality which God has brought into our lives way back when, but he did it. And he did it by his grace, because he loves you. The good news that is reflected in the waters of your baptism is that God loves you. He has sent his son, Jesus, for you, to cleanse you of your sins. He's gone through the entire process of adoption. He's paid all the fees to bring you into his family to bring you home to himself. You are united 
to Jesus Christ. That's the good news that's reflected in the waters of your baptism. You're, you're united to Jesus Christ. You've died to sin. You've been made alive to God. And you will be resurrected to eternal life with him. Jesus has poured the love of God into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. So believe that. And teach your children to believe it. So may the Spirit confirm your baptism to you and grant you the full assurance of God's favor that he belongs to you and you belong to him now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, many of us in this room have been baptized. We don't understand everything that it means. We don't think about it uh, maybe as often as we should uh, think about the significance of the fact that you have baptized us with your love, with your spirit, with water. You've made a statement regarding us and our families and everything that belongs to us, all of our possessions. You own us and our lives and all of our relationships in our households. We, we pray that uh, you would help us to respond to this great gift, the gift of yourself, the gift of baptism, the gift of repentance, that you would help us to respond to you, to who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ as we remember our baptism. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.